Hello everyone, welcome back to the Black and Red Book Review Podcast. Uh, this is the second half of Season 4. Uh, we are resuming this project after taking a break for Yule and the New Year. I hope everyone has had a good New Year and a good Yule, or a good Christmas, or Hanukkah, or Kwanzaa, or what have you. Uh, the second half of the season will be going from today up until... Uh, right around Beltane or so, towards the beginning of May, uh, and then we'll be taking another hiatus uh, until Season 5 resumes when it gets cold out again, because your host uh, is a very much a cool refrigerator temp weather type person. Uh, I am, of course, your host, Doc. I am a street medic, a union man, uh, a homesteader, and an all-around anarchist troublemaker hobo based out of so-called New England. And on this podcast, I, w- I have done and will continue to rate, read, review, critique, and mock white nationalist and neo-Nazi works of literature. I read their shit so that sane, normal, healthy people don't have to. And on this uh, episode, I have a first-timer who has not featured on this podcast before. Now, on this podcast, I have tried to keep a relatively uh, strong focus on American fascists, uh, American white nationalists, neo-Nazis, and literal Nazis in a few cases. But in this uh, case, we are going to discuss someone who is neither American nor a neo-Nazi. He was also not a Nazi, although he did briefly work for the SS, which didn't earn him much other than a surprise Allied bombing raid and a resulting life in a wheelchair, which frankly, this which frankly I happen to think is more than any uh, fascist deserves. Um, But the author we'll be discussing today is a little-known guy by the name of Julius Evola. Julius Evola, of course, being, in in truth, a relatively well-known author among the alt-right and uh, fascists of the past 15 years or so. So if you're listening to this and your 20-something-year-old son has Julius Evola on his bookshelf, um, you're going to want to have a serious discussion with him. But I was trying to decide which Julius Evola text I wanted to cover on this podcast. Would I do, uh, you know... Against the modern world, would I do uh, against modernity? No, 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 no. I decided to go with something that was a little uh, nichier, if that's a word. Um, so the text I will be covering today is simply entitled Fascism Viewed from the Right. So right away, Julius Evola is critiquing fascism from a spot on the political spectrum that is to the right of fascism. Now, keep in mind, Julius Evola was a contemporary of Mussolini. He was on trial uh, in, like, 1948, 1950 or so uh, for being allegedly a fascist, and his defense was that he was not a fascist. He was a, quote, super-fascist. That was the term he preferred for himself. He was also a big fan and associate... He was an associate, not really a big fan. He did get into fights with, but he was certainly known to and knew fellow podcast alum Francis Parker Yaki. Um, so anyway, without further ado, let's jump right into Fascism Feud from the Right. So uh, the publisher in question, whom I will not name as I don't want to drive traffic to a white nationalist publishing outfit, thanks a man by the name of Professor E. Christian Kopf, that's K-O-P-F-F, 
uh, for his work on this edition of this translation. So I hope that professor's proud of himself. He's uh, apparently of use to the white nationalists, which as long as you're of use to them, they will use the shit out of you and then throw you aside. So, without further ado, let's go into the biographical overview of Julius Evola as recounted in this text. Uh, apparently, in his youth, he was, quote, the major Italian Dadaist poet and painter. He was a big fan of, quote-unquote, esotericism and helped reintroduce Buddhism to the West in a sort of half-baked, incoherent 19th century way. He was, according to the author writing the overview, never a member of the fascist party, which, as we've laid out, was true, but with qualifications. Uh, he is interested in fascism's principles. He insists that human failings and historical accidents should not be held against men or movements unless they can be shown to be the consequences of mistaken principles. Now, I would argue that uh, you can hold... Italian fascists to account for their mistakes of thinking that they could fight the United States and Britain and France and Soviet Russia, uh, and that Italy was on the rise and about to be a world power over and above the uh, Allied powers. I would argue that the consequences of picking a fight with uh, the Allies should be held against Italian fascists, and you can judge Italian fascism by its consequences. But, you know, that's just me. Uh, <laughs> moving on here. Uh, the author, the uh, author of the preface says that, quote, Evola explains the principles of a true right with a capital R. A strong central state creates a nation and its people, not by vice versa. At the moral and political center of the best states is a king who may, however, and under fascism did, choose a leader to administer the state. Strong central leadership does not subvert and in fact encourages subsidiarity or federalism where most decisions and political activity occur at appropriate lower levels. Uh, subsidiarity does not imply democracy, the kingdom, or realm of quantity. On the contrary, fascism established a chamber of corporations. Oh boy, that sounds fucking menacing, doesn't it? Where the estates, professions, and vocations of the land were represented on the basis of importance and achievement, not of pure number. Now, st stopping right there for a second. If you're trying to make decisions for the greatest number of people in your country, which fascism is not trying to do, I would argue that uh, basing your uh, political system on vague concepts like importance and achievement without having any real way of measuring those is probably not the recipe for a sustainable political system. Um, but luckily, the author uh, has some more thoughts on this. Quote, in a traditional state, the economy is subordinate to the political. Mussolini denied that homo economicus existed. Evola does not agree. Unfortunately, in some people, the economic dominates the political, ethical, and religious. This psychological condition is a mental illness, demonic possession by the economy. A healthy state is like a healthy human. Free men are unified and coherent individuals who are not dominated by the outside physical world, but they are also differentiated with a proper hierarchy of spirit, soul, and body within. So, of course, this is the typical fascist naturalizing of social hierarchies and saying, well, just because this society has this division of hierarchies, this must mean that nature inherently loves hierarchies, and you can't find a single example of non-hierarchical organizing in nature or even among other human societies. We are nailing this, and uh, ours is the best possible way of running society. 
Uh, so there's more about uh, the naturalism and, and biological necessity for war and how great war is and how great fascists are at war, which this was written in like 1948 in Italy. So <laughs> I don't know how you got to that conclusion in 1948 in Italy other than a strong dose of ideology. But OK, whatever. Moving on. Uh, Evola viewed race as a spiritual hierarchy and not a pseudo-biological one, so he was not the type of fascist who measured people's noses to see if they were too Jewy and therefore wound up in a camp. Uh, he had a critique of one-party states, uh, which so do I, um, but mine is that uh, states and political parties are... are uh, inefficient and inherently self-serving and not in the best interests of the plurality of people. His critique of one-party states is that they still contain political parties, which is a big-brain genius critique if I've ever heard one. Don't worry, he has other big-brain genius takes as we go through this text here. I like to imagine that uh, as Mussolini is reading this, Mussolini calls an Evola and goes, Julius, of course a one-party state still contains political parties. It contains our party, the fascist party. Got it? Like, shut the fuck up. So anyway, moving on. Chapter 1, and now we're going over to transition to actual Julius Evola here. Uh, it starts off very promising here. Uh, he says that his text will be, quote, limited to fascism's general aspect and basically will take place on the level of principles. To achieve this, it is necessary above all to indicate what we understand by the right the political right, the right wing, even if this task will not be easy because it is not possible to furnish the general reader with reference points that have a direct relationship with contemporary reality. So he's admitted that his politics are not based on contemporary reality, and so his politics can't have a reference point that has a relationship with reality. So that is a very promising start right off the bat. Fantastic. Uh... On the first point, says Evola, we must say that there does not exist in Italy today a right wing worthy of this name, a right wing as a unified political force that is organized and furnished with a precise doctrine. What is currently called the right in political struggles is defined less by a positive content than by a generic opposition to the most extreme forms of subversion and social revolution that gravitate around Marxism and communism. The Italian right includes diverse and even contradictory tendencies. A significant sign of confused ideas in today's narrow horizons is established by the fact that in Italy today, liberals and many other proponents of democracy can be considered as men of the right, a situation that would have appalled representatives of a real traditional right. Liberals are on the right. You heard it here first. Uh... So he launches right into uh, shitting on Marxists, of course. For Marxists, there is no difference between the right and the capitalist, or the conservative and reactionary bourgeoisie, which is intent on defending its interests and privileges. In our political writings, we have never grown weary of denouncing this insidious confusion and in the irresponsibility of those who, by favoring this confusion to some degree, offer arms to the enemy. Between the true right and the economic right, meaning like market liberals, there is not only no common identity, but on the contrary, there is a clear antithesis. So he's to the right of free market conservatives, is basically what he's trying to lay out here. On, and he has some notes on the pre-fascist Italian right. Quote, at any rate, it was basically an expression of the bourgeoisie. Unlike the right of other nations, it did not represent an aristocracy as a political class that represented an old tradition. So his 
problem with the Italian right prior to fascism was that it was bourgeois shit, which that's an interesting critique to me, a class struggle anarchist. Um, but also, it's it wasn't aristocratic enough. It didn't have enough dukes and counts and shit. That was his main. That's his main problem. That's that's quite a hot take right there. Uh, so uh, if if it ever strikes the listener of this podcast that the right wing and its various uh, thinkers and authors and such have had no real precise legacy, uh, he agreed with that. Quote, the historic right has left us no precise ideological legacy and has developed into a moderate liberalism. So if you're a conservative listening to this podcast, congratulations, you believe in liberalism. I've explained this before on this podcast, but if you believe in the Enlightenment, you believe in Constitution and natural liberty, and all that good 18th century horseshit, uh, then you're you're a liberal. Congratulations. This was uh, more apparent back around 2018 when every right-winger tried calling themselves a classical liberal for five minutes. Uh, but we're going to skip ahead a little bit here through this introduction. Yada, 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 the... Right presents itself factually as the antithesis of the various lefts, almost in competition with them on the same level. In principle, however, the right represents, or ought to represent, a higher demand. It ought to be the recipient and affirmer of values linked directly to the idea of the true state. Values that are in a certain sense central and superior to every practical opposition, according to the superiority inherent in the very concept of authority. Now, what those actual values and ideas are, that's never explained but the right has to be the custodian of these mysterious phantom ideas and those mysterious phantom ideas can be whatever Evola says those mysterious superior phantom ideas are so that's very convenient Uh, moving on to chapter 2 here Fascism has undergone a process of what can be called mythologizing. In regard to it, the attitude taken by most people has an emotional and irrational character instead of a critical and intellectual one. So if your house got bobbed and your kid got killed and your neighborhood is in ruins and you're sitting around going, man, I really fucking hate the fascists for dragging me into a fucking war and murdering half my family. You're just being emotional and irrational, according to Julius Evola. Uh, this is a hot take in 2023, but I imagine in 1948 or 53, this would I would have I would have been so incandescent with rage I can't even imagine. Like fuck you. Anyway, moving on here. This is especially true for those who maintain an ideological loyalty to yesterday's Italy. They have made Mussolini and fascism into objects of a myth, and they keep their eye on a reality that is historically conditioned and on the man who was its center, instead of on political ideas that should be taken seriously in themselves and for themselves, independently of these historical accidents, so as to be able to maintain forever their normative value in regard to a clearly defined political system. So basically, you should regard fascists as people who believe in a thing called fascism and not worry so much about Italians and Mussolini and like what fascists actually did. You should worry more about the ideas and uh, the content of the ideas of fascism, not on what fascists have actually done and will actually do given half a chance. Now, I don't agree with that. You can actually engage with them and tear apart their ideas and like ambush them in the battleground of ideas while also uh, making fun of their important sacred cows, so to speak. That is basically the dual purpose of this podcast. That's why we're recording this episode right here. Um, 
and moving on here, we will come to what I have to say is my favorite uh, text so f- or, or quote from the text so far in this episode. This is real galaxy brain shit right here. Quote, we should call ourselves fascist if we decide to do so uh, in relation to what was positive in fascism, but not fascist in relation to what was not positive in fascism. So if fascists do good things, then we're fascists. But if fascists do bad things, we won't call ourselves fascists. We'll call ourselves some other thing. Fantastic. Galaxy brain level shit right there. Big brain genius, man. <laughs> Great guy. Um... Uh, chapter three. The, my only note is that uh, the pre pre World War II interwar Italian state lacked a national myth, uh, and that was a bad thing. Um, everyone was poor, and everything was falling apart. And instead of money or more control of their lives, working people and poor people and peasants in Italy needed a national myth. That's what they fucking needed. Uh, The right is opposed to democracy. It doesn't believe in capitalism. Frankly, a concern with money and economics and where your food comes from is just kind of bourgeois liberal nonsense. Uh, Fascists believe in private initiative, but also want to force workers to know their place and be in state-run corporations with their bosses and that these will be the things that will decide the economy. I'm summarizing quite a bit of wordiness here, but that's basically what it boils down to. This man, in addition to not being a big brain genius, is also a terrible fucking writer. Like, this is this is uh, one of the wordier texts I've ever had notes from. And I've only recorded a few lines from a few chapters, and we are already 17 and a half minutes into this text. This is insane. Ugh. This is a book people read if they want to to sound smart without actually saying anything. Um, So let's go into chapter 5 here. Uh, The uh, Evola points out that fascism is always a LARP. Quote, Those regimes that, although representing to some degree a regular traditional character, did not have a monarchical structure or a parallel type of leadership, owed their traditional character to situations that belong to the past. So, yeah, uh, fascism always harps on a reactionary utopian vision of the past that never existed and uh, tries to engage in an exercise of, big word here, palingenesis or national rebirth. Moving on here. Uh, Since we are occupied here essentially with doctrine, it is no part of our task to express express a value judgment on the way the crisis of the diarchy happened when things in Italy took a turn for the worse, essentially as a result of violence because of the unfortunate events of the war. So let's not judge fascism by what fascism did and whether or not it worked as a political system. We are focusing on ideas. Now, have we actually gotten to the root of any of fascism's real ideas? Not really. <laughs> what these glorious ideas and national myths are, Evola actually doesn't really lay out in this text, uh, so it doesn't actually work work as a critique, despite supposedly being a critique of fascism. Um, So he doesn't actually end up saying much of anything at all. Uh, Yesterday's fascist party of Italy was a state within the state, uh, and the state within the state was not a truly organic and monolithic system. Uh, The party is not actually capable of running a state, and it shouldn't be running a state. Uh... And it, 
he the fascist party was not elitist enough. That's another critique Evola has. Um, it became necessary for a while for everyone to have fascist party cards to do things like buy food and have a house and, and join any number of youth organizations and so on. Um, and so he viewed this instead of being like, oh, these fascists are trying to control every aspect of people's lives and this is bad. Uh, his critique was that, no, no, their attempt to control every aspect of people's lives in fascist Italy was de democratic, was democratizing. And this led to just letting in any old riffraff into the fascist party. And the fascist party needed to be more elitist and more top-down and more of a pyramid scheme than it already was. Which is a, a galaxy brain take if there ever were one. Uh, all right, here we are, chapter seven now. Quote, There is no real qualitative difference between the phenomenon we are now discussing, which some people would like to make exclusively the fault of certain forms of dictatorship. That phrase is doing a lot of work in this uh, incredible run-on sentence. And on the other hand, everything that we find present in the political world of anti-fascist democracy, with its methods of propaganda and demagogy, its heap of experts, and the fabrication of public opinion. But granted the validity of this objection and the consequences that can be drawn from it from politics as a mere art of the possible, it does not touch the realm of principles and structures, which is the only one that interests us. For the distinction we are dealing with here, one point is of fundamental importance. Today, no one pays attention to it, but there exists a clear chasm between the natural authority of a real leader and an authority based on an amorphous power and the capacity or art we have talked about of arousing the emotional and irrational forces of the masses under the influence of an exceptional individual. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, again, fascism is too democratic and not elitist enough, uh, says the rich boy Count Julius Evola. Moving on to chapter 8 here, uh... Fascism had to operate and get itself elected democratically, and so it needed to be more elitist. Uh, the fascist corporatists were, uh, trying to allow the economy to take over the state and this would destroy the very idea of the state because Evola being a rich boy count uh, didn't really give a shit about economics or food or where people's meals came from uh, this was all boring and beneath him because he had magical special count blood um, really a great fucking guy Julius Evola at least he wasn't a Nazi um, because he would have then uh, had to be euthanized for being in a wheelchair but luckily he was an Italian super fascist and thus not a big fan of eugenics laws as they were not elitist enough. Um, you can't just make people better than they really are after all. They're just, they have to be born superior and preferably spiritually superior according to Evolian type fascists. Uh, fascism smashed trade unionism, uh, but also it was too bound up in class struggle um, and it was working too hard for the bosses, which I would agree with. Um, fascism is always a politics of bosses smashing union people. Fascists uh, were not quite as much scabs as they should have been, um, according to Julius Evola. So anyway, uh, moving on here. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he wanted fascists to smash both classes, uh, bosses and workers, and whatever pathetic middle-class strata are sort of in the in-between position um, in Italian society. Uh, 
quote, the essential point was a new climate that acted in a direct informative way on businesses and restored to them the traditional character of corporations. It therefore first dealt with acting on the mentalities of those involved. On the one hand, it was necessary to eliminate the proletarian and Marxist influences on the worker, and on the other, to destroy the purely capitalist mentality of the entrepreneur. We might mention that, in principle, it was rather German National Socialism, Nazis, and also the counter-revolutionary movements in Spain and Portugal that proceeded more decisively ahead in the correct traditional direction. In the German case, even in this regard, one should think of the influence exercised by the survival of older structures supported by a corresponding attitude and a corresponding tradition that did not exist in Italy. It was this influence that was bound to continue even after the collapse of Hitlerism and the formal elimination of National Socialist labor legislation, and it was due to this influence that what has been called the economic miracle of West Germany after the Great Catastrophe took place. So basically what he's saying is um, West Germany inherited many of its labor laws and practices from Nazi Germany, and this was what contributed to the post-war rebirth of capitalist Germany, which is uh, a hilariously accurate critique of... uh, you know, capitalism from a fascist. Once again, broken clocks can tell you when it's 3 a.m. They're not always right when they tell you it's 3 a.m., but once a day, they will be right when they tell you it's 3 a.m. That's how broken clocks work. Uh, I'm not going to try to read this incredibly run-on paragraph. I'm getting tired of this shit already, and we are still not done with this text. Basically, his critique of Nazism, which is that it's just not authoritarian enough, and it's too popular and too populist, and too many riffraff people are involved, and why can't they just be led by spiritual fucking aristocrats, basically? Uh, chapter 11. Okay, let's, let's, uh, actually, no, let's, let's not do that. Let's, uh, skip ahead here. Uh, here's an interesting one. Broken clock telling the time correctly. Obviously, political liberties, quote-unquote, are nothing without economic liberty or autonomy in the individual field as well as the collective one. In the collective field, because it's the groups in possession of wealth who control the press and all the other means of shaping public opinion and disseminating propaganda in a democratic regime, in the individual and practical field, because access to the various conquests of modern technical and economic civilization, with its apparent prosperity, are paid for with just as many constraints on the individual, with an increasingly rigorous integration into into the collective gears set in motion by the economy and in front of which political liberties are something derisory or something mockable or worth making fun of. Basically, capitalism ruins everything around me. Which, again, broken clocks being right. Uh, He rambled on about Spangler and ethics and continental philosophy for five pages and I love this, quote, All this obviously carries us rather far beyond the topic of an examination of the doctrine of fascism, which is a wordy way of saying, I am off on a fucking tangent, let me try to bring it back around. Even though he really doesn't succeed at doing that. He, he is a tangential motherfucker if there ever has been one on this podcast. Uh, race is not real, and it's too arbitrary, and we need to substitute race for a spiritual aristocracy. Uh, that's basically a summary of the rest of this book. 
uh, it's more of the same wordy bullshit. Basically, Julius Evola was a, a nerdy, bougie intellectual born with a silver spoon in his mouth as a literal fucking count who uh, did apologetics for Mussolini, decided Mussolini wasn't quite up to the ideal vision of, of authoritarian hierarchy that Evola had in his head, so he went to go work for the Seeker Heidstienst uh, wing of the SS for a while, got into an Allied bombing raid, was in a wheelchair, and basically spent the rest of his life helping formulate post-war Italian fascism. He was directly involved in the founding of the Italian Social Movement, or MSI, which was later renamed to the Fratelli d'Italia, or Brothers of Italy, who just got themselves elected, or one of their members elected to uh, Prime Minister of Italy. Alessandra Mussolini, granddaughter of Benito Mussolini, uh, is a member of the Fratelli d'Italia, and again, Italy has a literal fascist Prime Minister now. So ultimately... I, I won't go so far as to say Evola won. I will go so far as to say fascism is on a resurgence in Italy, which is fucking disgusting. And I wish all Italian anti-fascists all the love and support in the world. And I sincerely hope they do a bunch of shit that is not best not discussed on an American-based podcast. Until then... Uh, I am signing off because I am tired. My brain hurts from reading this wordy word salad bullshit nonsense for half an hour. Uh, I will return in a couple weeks with more fascist bullshit for everyone to enjoy. Bella Ciao. I'll see you in the streets.